Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the nonprofit newsfeed, of course, brought to you by Whole Whale, we have some stories for you related to some updates to Narcan, how that was created by a nonprofit, Elon doing Elon stuff, and some sad history about Native American children uh, revealed by a nonprofit. Nick, how's it going? It's going great, George. It's super hot here in New York. Uh, I'm excited to get into it. Our first story comes from The Hill, the congressional politics outsource. And this article is about naloxone or naloxone, which is a medicine produced by Harm Reduction Therapeutics. This counts as the second over-the-counter naloxone product approved by the FDA this year. So this is essentially a cheap dose, essentially, that can reverse opioid overdose instances. It can save lives. George, you and I on the podcast have talked a lot about the need for kind of safer drug practices and interventions that are not abstinence, but actually meeting people where they're at. And this in, you know, in the surge of opioid deaths in the United States, naloxone can be administered by anybody and can reverse an opioid overdose. So this is a huge step. And George, I think what's important is we like to talk about kind of nonprofit produced medicine on this show. We've talked about some novel approaches to this. This seems to be one of them and with potentially life-saving applications, the the access to naloxone is actually differs state by state. Some states will literally just give them out for free. Some states don't even let citizens access them. You can probably guess which states those are. But George, this is a major development for tackling the opioid epidemic in the United States. Yeah. And the drug is more commonly referred to as Narcan. And again, Revive is a nonprofit organization putting this out there, FDA approved. And as of September 15th, according to the Washington Post, is now going to be available without a prescription, which is pretty incredible because it's going to hopefully reduce the opioid-related deaths and give organizations that work in communities that are disproportionately affected by opioid abuse the ability to basically source this and provide this to people in need. I think the cost is about $45 for two, two uses of this spray. And, you know, I think when you look at the fact that more than 110,000 people have reportedly believed to have died from this type of drug poisoning in the last year, two-thirds from synthetic opioids, Narcan is a, one of the most widely used solutions for this. So, uh <laughs> Reducing friction for life-saving drugs, A+. plus. I think uh, I liked seeing this positive step toward supporting people affected by the opioid pandemic in our country. Yeah, George, I think it's a really welcome intervention. It can strengthen community-based intervention programs that are locally administered. We've talked about efforts even close to home here in New York City for me, which, you know, tackles serious drug problems, but not just in big cities, but in rural America, everywhere. This is life-saving stuff. So just tremendous effort by the government and the nonprofit organization manufacturing this drug. 
to bring it to market and make it truly accessible. All right, I can take us into our next story. And this one, again, we have to shake our heads because Elon Musk has put himself back into the news. He's now coming after the Anti-Defamation League. The Anti-Defamation League has levied accusations um, that anti-Semitism is on the rise at Twitter. Elon Musk's, I would say, policies have been incongruent on free speech, to say the least. But now Musk blames the Anti-Defamation League for the slump in ad sales and has actually threatened a lawsuit. Some might argue that (laughs) the Anti-Defamation League was actually free speech that's protected, and now he's suing them. So, George, there doesn't seem to be a ton of rhyme or reason on how Musk approaches speech issues beyond essentially how those issues impact his bottom line. But what does this mean for nonprofits that are still considering whether or not to be on Twitter, nonprofits that even study or monitor mis- and disinformation on Twitter? What are your takeaways here? I think the first off, free speech is different than my speech. And, you know, I think for Elon, free is in the eye of the beholder and he is the beholder. So it's really interesting to watch both sides of his mouth talk at the same time. I think he should focus on the businesses that he has previously executed on with regard to physical science as opposed to social science. Uh, He continues to fail this and is like, clearly, if you think that like that report did something, you publicly coming out and attacking the Anti-Defamation League for factually, frankly, reporting that Based on 5,000 examples from 2,173 accounts, they found anti-Semitism. Yes, you could find that at any point in time, but they reported it. Factually accurate. You know, show the, show the data, not this like tweet. And um, if you think this is going to help your reputation with advertisers, I think suing the Anti-Defamation League for factually reporting on data. Um, <laughs> let's see how that goes. George, if I'm not mistaken, Musk also is no longer the CEO. Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to keep track of it. And I think the farther he gets away from that company, the better, where you let just, you know, folks get back to, to running it the way it should. It's hard to say. You know, you also see a, down, um, a, a downturn for threads recently, you know, reporting a couple of weeks ago, showing that the number of initially engaged accounts had dropped by 50%. So there's a social media landscape shakeup. I think it's a little, it's tough to, you know, recommend a nonprofit spend tons of time on on either platform, uh, yet you kind of have to have maintained a presence there. And, you know, it's a massive reminder that no matter where you build, if you don't own the servers and you don't own the land, then you don't own the audience and anything can change at any point. And we always are recommending our our clients own that core asset, which is the permission to communicate to your audience via email, via SMS, or via your own owned domain. There's, you know, accept no substitutes uh, because this is the risk you play with. Albeit, this is a very edge case where an eccentric billionaire buys that social platform and then turns it into a narrative hellscape. Albeit, like, from the data perspective, it's like, Twitter's still as shitty as it used to be. Like, it's the funny thing. Like, you could come out with that report at any point in Twitter's, like, past history, but it's just, you know, with extra added scrutiny, you're like, no, actually, this is, like, a bit of a cesspool, isn't it? And you're like, okay. No, totally. It's not uh, like Twitter Elon showed not... up and it got worse. It was always a hellscape. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was bad and ripe with misinformation and toxicity. Completely. It was not a utopia. <laughs> <laughs> it's like back to the way it used to be. Like you didn't use that platform, did you? So I, I think, look, if I were to, from his perspective, it must, you know, it must be frustrating and be like, it was terrible. Actually, it's objectively better, but you can still find that, look, if you're trying to improve it and if you look for ways in which it's not, you will find it. You find what you look for. Yeah. And you have to engage civil society. Like, not belittling civil society should be step number one. We have to pay extra for those sirens in the background. We got the man on the street today, Nick, starting his first full week of classes. We're so excited for you. Where, where are you right now? Thanks, George. I think it's taken an earlier just to tell a little bit about where I am um, and the program. So I'm at, on campus in Morningside Heights at Columbia University. This is my first day of class. I'm pursuing a master's in human rights. My concentration is likely to focus at the nexus of how technology impacts human rights practitioners at institutional, organizational, and grassroots levels. Not dissimilar from the kind of topics that we like to focus on here on the podcast. So stay tuned from learnings, field reports. Maybe I'll read my thesis on the podcast. We'll see. But you think you're not going to be bringing that thesis <laughs> on here? We're, we're all coming along this ride with you for sure. Absolutely. And just, again, very grateful to all the folks at Whole Whale. Um, especially George for making this possible. So quite excited. And this message brought to you by Whole Whale. <laughs> Come work here. <laughs> Can recommend. George, should I take us into our next story? Yeah, what do we got? All right, this one is a really sad one. This is actually not a topic I think we've talked about on the podcast yet. This comes from the Washington Post. And the headline of this article is that more schools that forced American Indian children to assimilate have been revealed. So a list released last Wednesday by the nonprofit, the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, which used a different criteria than the government identified 115 additional institutions that operated beginning in 1801, most of them run by religious groups, churches, which brings the total number of Native American boarding schools to 523 in 38 states. If you're unfamiliar with forced assimilation, often done through these boarding schools, I recommend reading it with just a very intense content warning. Uh, schools were rife with all types of abuse, sexual abuse, almost torture. Many students died. It was a form of control. It was perpetuated by all sorts of institutions, especially religious institutions that forced essentially Native American children off of reservations into these schools and programs. It's a form of violence. Some scholars even consider it a form of genocide, kind of institutionalized. So this type of work has been really prominent in history in Canada. Canada has gone through kind of a reckoning with wide scale acknowledgement of the abuses that occurred in these churches, which, by the way, some of which didn't shut down until fairly recently. George, both with in your lifetime and my lifetime, um, some of these schools still were up and running. So this is really important work. It's restorative. It's reparative. It evaluates history. And history impacts the present. And I think acknowledging that history, that history of violence is really important to contextualize a lot of contemporary issues with indigeneity, both in Canada and the United States. Yeah, and 
incredible work here to do this type of research by the nonprofits involved and and bringing that to light as this is, you know, a generation still alive, but, you know, very quickly passing on this legacy and sad history of what actually happened as a part of these, you know, re-education camps for, for children. And yeah, in order to to repair it, I think you gotta have to understand and document it. So great work by this nonprofit. Absolutely. All righty. I will now take us into our next one. And this one comes from WCVB Austin. And the title is that Wicker defrauds Massachusetts nonprofit out of $100,000 worth of Apple laptops. George, what's your takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I know Mass Challenge also helps entrepreneurs, and so it's sad to see this, but ultimately, this type of fraud can, you know, occur at any organization, even ones that may be tech savvy, but keeping track of your inventory is huge. And this is just a case of a credit card being used for a bunch of computers and those computers sort of going missing, allegedly, from this. And so making sure, especially as you close out, getting toward the end of your year, you're not just counting for the dollars, but also the equipment and with remote first work, the ability to sort of have a bunch of these machines sitting somewhere and not necessarily having that full inventory is incredibly important to uh, unfortunately prevent fraud, but also the efficient use of of technology. So I just sort of saw this and, uh, you know, had it, had had to put it out there. Absolutely. All right, George, I think it's that time of the podcast that we go to a feel-good story. Yeah, what do you, uh, oh, I have to get you the feel-good story. Hold on, I have a good one for you. Uh, On this one, Bob Barker. This is Bob Barker's estate. Do you have this one? I gotta share it with you. I have it, George. Okay. Bob Barker, um, as we all know, passed away last week, but his legacy lives on in a massive donation to 501c3. So the former Price and Right host, longtime rep, tells, this is from TMZ, that um, in the wake of his passing, uh, assets will be dispersed among 40 different animal rights and military nonprofits, including the Donkey Land Rescue in Riverside, California, and the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, which protects whales in the ocean. Um, uh, uh, in addition, uh, funds are going to United Activists for Animal Rights, um, as well as other organizations. So Bob Barker, TV legend, will be missed, um, but still doing good work, um, even after his time on Earth has concluded. Yeah, I mean, leave it to TMZ to lead with the headline that he spent his last days watching Two and a Half Men reruns rather than the amazing generosity uh he displayed by not only a lifetime of helping these causes but also uh in his end uh giving to over 40 plus nonprofits. so it was really amazing uh, i think to, to see but also come on tmz all right nick i have i have a joke for you uh okay uh what did the Emergency preparedness organization say after making a mistake about their earthquake related newsletter. It's a long one. I, I it's a long one. I don't know, George. Sorry, it's our fault. Ah, I see. I see. I yeah. see. That's not a my good best. One. Not my worst. It's in there though. 
Hey, but you know what? That one includes practical advice because uh, we can tell you from experience that apology emails are some of the most opened emails you can send as an organization. So there'd be something to be said about that. Wow. Actually, I haven't finished writing the email, but that'll go in as the, uh, the extra hot take in there. All right, Nick, get back to class. Thank you so much. Thanks, George. Talk later. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 